before we are are done with doing this. So let's get ourselves ready spiritually. Let's get ourselves ready physically so we can study the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so honored and privileged and blessed to be called your kids. We're honored that we can bring the sacrifice of praise to the house of the Lord. We're honored that you said come boldly into the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Father, it's not by our own doing that that happened, but Father, it's by the amazing work of your Son on a cross in our place that whosoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. What an amazing piece of good news that is. And Father, now that we've accepted that, Father, we come in front of you and say we want to learn more about your word. We want to learn more about you. We ask this morning you'll give us some insights into this amazing plan of yours so that we can leave again with a newfound sense of awe. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Matthew 2, (coughs) the escape to Egypt is what we're looking at now. In Matthew 2.13, it says, Now when they, and this is the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now this appeared is the the present middle indicative of phino, which means, the middle means he manifested it himself. It's a reflexive um, construction in the Greek. Phino means he, he appeared. So it's a good translation of the word. To Joseph in a dream. Now, Joseph had been visited by an angel before, right? He was getting ready to put Mary away because she was, she was pregnant. And, and the angel said, no, don't do that, Joseph. Okay, you're going to take care of her. And so one of the great things we see about Joseph is his obedience. He followed instructions. And that, uh, we don't see that very often in a lot of the biblical characters, do we? What we see is God say, they say, do we, you want us to go to Egypt? And he says, don't go to Egypt. And so they went to Egypt. And that's what we normally find in the scripture. But not with Joseph. <clears throat> he said, occurred to, appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise. Okay, in a dream, get up out of bed. Take the child, the paideon is the word for child, used 52 times. It's kind of a broad-based word, meaning anything from an infant to a small child. So it doesn't tell us how old he is. He's not a teenager, and he's not on farther end. But he says, <clears throat> see, there's, there's commands here. There's four commands. Arise, okay? Get up out of bed like we had to do this morning, okay? Then he says, take, second command that's there. <clears throat> take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So four commands he gives, and he gives them very clearly. First one is arise, next one is take, next one is flee, and the next one is stay there. Okay, That's got some pretty good practical information at times, doesn't it? Whenever we're facing various things. Now, we, we tend to either fight or flee, it's what we do, but when God comes and sends an angel and says, go, then you go. It always bothered me, because I, I, I look for formulas. I know none of you do anywhere, but I look for formulas in Scripture. I want to find, well, if this happens, then I do this. And if this, 
And, you know, I kept going through the New Testament and looking for them, and what I found out is the formula is ask for wisdom and rely on the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes Paul fled. Okay? Take all the circumstances. Sometimes they let him down out of the window, and he ran off. Other times he says, take me, I'm yours. When did he know when to do that? Because he was listening to the Holy Spirit's leading and guidance. Some people want to take the mystical, if you will, out of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is just that. He is the Holy Spirit. And he can lead us in ways that we, we, can't, we can't quantify. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us have had, some say, premonitions and all this other stuff. Like, don't step out into the street. The next thing you know, a car comes from nowhere. I mean, there have been things like that. But the Holy Spirit can lead us, so we need to be sensitive. In verse 14, it says he arose, he took the child and his mother by night. Okay, so he woke him up in a dream, and he took him, and he departed for Egypt. So any time we see Joseph, it's pretty cool. He's obeying what the Lord says to do. And he uses the, the words here. He rose, okay, he took And he left. He did the things that he was called to do. In verse 15, And was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, is an interesting passage about the the Jews leaving Egypt. But Hosea 11, 1 is where where this comes from. The key is Joseph was obedient to God. It's interesting that out of Egypt I took my son. Do you remember another Joseph that popped into the scriptures back in the book of Genesis? The 11th son of Jacob through Rachel, firstborn of Rachel. And what happened? His brothers didn't like him because his dad played favorites. And so they fixed him up. They threw him into a pit. And then there was a caravan coming along. They sold him into Egypt, into slavery, and into Egypt. Joseph lived an exemplary life while he was there in Egypt and became prime minister of Egypt. So what did Joseph do? The first Joseph do? Hmm. He, he had uh, the people there with a place that they could go, and there they were able to stay for a couple of hundred years, and they were able to stay in Egypt and be taken care of under the auspices of Pharaoh. And then there was a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, and he started to make it quite difficult. Have you ever faced that test, the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, and you were the Joseph? And you've done a good job for the last boss. And the new boss comes along and he doesn't like the way you do it and wants to change it. You're facing the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph test. And it's common, common to man. <clears throat> now, Joseph, the son of Jacob, was sent as an instrument to deliver his people. But this Joseph went to Egypt where he would be an instrument used to deliver Israel's Messiah. So we find Yasaf is the word means to add. That's where, where the name Joseph comes from. And so here, in a sense, he is a he's a savior. He's a savior in both instances. In verse 16, he says, Then when Herod saw that he'd been tricked. <coughs> the word tricked is impiedzo. 
Aorist passive indicative, meaning he received the trickery. Aorist is a point in time. Indicative is a historical fact. It really happened. Impiedzo is used 13 times, and the other times it's translated as mocked. Because when you've tricked somebody, you basically mock them. You figured out a way to get out around their intelligence, and so that's what trickery is. So he had been tricked, he'd been mocked, is what it literally says, by the Magi. He became very enraged. Now, enraged is the word thumao, several words translated anger, uh, mad, etc., in the New Testament Greek, thumao is a word that's an explosive anger. Orge is a word that's a slow-burning fuse. Now, you may have been somebody around somebody who's mad all the time. Okay, that's orge. And then you may have been around somebody that just kind of blows up all at once. Thumao. And an interesting thing, when you study the words, you find out that there's a righteous orge and an unrighteous uh and a righteous thumao and an unrighteous thumao. You want to find them? Look in the book of Revelation. When God has his wrath, they normally translate orge as wrath, the slow burning type, and thumao is whenever it just blows up and explodes, like there. So what we see with Herod, with the word that's added to it, he's very angry, very he blew up when he found it out. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem. Now, sent is the word apostello. Interesting word, used 132 times. We get the word apostle out of this. And this is, this is the first place we find it. Now, <clears throat> it means when you track the word down, and there's a lot of uses, estello means to send, apo from, to send from. And it has the nuance with authority. They're sent with authority to accomplish a certain task. That's what apostles were done. They were sent out into all the world to accomplish a certain task. That's what their that's what their job was, as described by the term apostle. So he sent people with authority, and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs <clears throat> from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained. From the Magi, acrobao is an interesting word. It means he, he diligently went after. Okay, so it wasn't like they came in and says, "Oh yeah, the King of the Jews is going to be born here," and Herod went, "Oh, isn't that cool?" You know, no, he went after. He wanted to know where they got this, when it was going to happen, how do you figure it out? Acrobao is a word. It means he took a diligent, diligent look at it. He says, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled with the slaying of all these male children, saying, in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children. Who's Rachel? Hmm. Wife of Jacob? Okay. One of the four? Okay. That's a good way to study marriage. Don't get, don't marry four wives. Okay, there's quite a marriage lesson in there. We'd cover that one of these days. Rachel weeping for her children. Okay, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. 
Now, first of all, Joseph's obedience was used to deliver the infant Jesus. Okay? His obedience. <clears throat> God was going to deliver him one way or another. But what he did was give Joseph an opportunity to participate in it. And that's, the, that's what our ministry is. I hear people talk about my ministry, my ministry. It's not my ministry. It is the Lord's ministry, whatever he's doing. And he gives us the opportunity to share. Henry Blackaby wrote a book called Experiencing God a long time ago. And one time we went through the book. And one of the great points in the book was find out where God is at work and join him. I thought, that makes sense. (laughs) You know. Is this his will? Well, if he's already doing it, <laughs> yeah, you know it's his will. So join him. Okay? And you, you're being used there, and so what happens is that if he wants to move you, he moves you. But you find out where he's working and join him. Now, his obedience was used to deliver the infant Jesus. Now, this this prophecy is in an otherwise millennial context. But this portion is fulfilled. What does that mean? This is First Advent stuff. Jesus had just been born. It's being written by Matthew under the inspiration of the Spirit that that spoken through Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Is the millennium coming? It's got a ways to go, and God, God knows that. But here you're, we're going to learn some things about the interpretation of prophecy from this passage. Now this shows us that part of the millennial kingdom will be about remembering all the great things the Lord has done. Part of the millennial kingdom. As we're studying Ezekiel's temple, Ezekiel 40 through 48, fascinating to look at. It is it is it'll hold all the other temples under uh, inside of it. It's huge. It's large. It's square. It's not rectangular. There are things that are different about the temple of Ezekiel that are that are absolutely beautiful. But what does it represent? Last Wednesday night we saw they're going to be offering sacrifices again in the millennial temple. Why? Good question. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and sat down at the right hand of God. Why are we offering sacrifices again? Who's offering sacrifices? What are they doing? What it does says unequivocally is they're going to be offering sacrifices in the millennial temple. So it calls us to figure out the why. But what's the millennial temple about? Not about the coming Messiah because he's already come. In fact, he's already come twice. So it's about a memorial to his comings. And that's how we have to approach the understanding of the millennial temple. Now the fourth point, this, this passage teaches us about the principle of double reference. Now, when going through and being taught hermeneutics in seminary, you go through and find out there's some very basic hermeneutics to all things in the way that you approach the scripture. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. And it means how do you approach the scripture? Do you approach it as something literal? Do you approach it as allegorical? Why do you do those things? And why do you take those approaches? And that's uh, the approach is often why we have people so far apart in Christianity. 
Okay, that's why they're we're we're so different. It's uh, interesting the Roman Catholic Church that became allegorical in their interpretation. It's interesting that the Jews were allegorical prior to the birth of Christ, and then after the birth of Christ, and they saw it literally fulfilled and all that, people became literal. And then a couple, three, four hundred years go by, and you find out, well, he didn't come back right away, so these passage must, passages must not be literal. So they moved into an allegorical school of interpretation led by Augustine and Jerome. And so out of that interpretation in the Latin Vulgate, they, the Roman Catholic Church began in um, 586 A.D. with the election of Pope Gregory as the first pope. So their whole approach was allegorical in scope. Now we're of that old school that says if God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Okay? He can use figurative language, and that's all fine, but he's still going to do it, and he's still going to, to carry it out. So what is double reference about? Now, <clears throat> double reference, oftentimes there will be a passage in the Old Testament. Now, not all of them are double reference, and that's where interpreters get off. They, they find things in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled. If those things have been fulfilled, they don't need to be fulfilled again. But they also find things that are partially fulfilled. This one is partially fulfilled. Some call it, in the hermeneutics, the law of double reference. I don't see it as a law of double reference, but a principle of double reference. Okay? And <clears throat> the reason why do we see this as double reference is it the context of the last days? Okay, when you study Jeremiah, and you get to rolling through Jeremiah there, jumping through Jeremiah, as some would say, uh, <clears throat> we have Jeremiah 30 leading up to Jeremiah 31, quite obviously. Verse 23 Behold the tempest of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back. These passages sound remotely familiar. I know you've read the book of Revelation. A lot of people start there. Don't start there. Read the other ones first. But they, they read the book of Revelation and say, God's mad. Right? It was prophesied. Here Jeremiah we're four or five hundred years prior to Christ. He says, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back. That's tribulational, late tribulational too. Until he has performed, until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days you will understand this. That wasn't fulfilled at the first advent, was it? Nope, not until 70 A.D., was a little bit of the wrath of God poured out when he turned the Roman legions loose on Israel. So this is a passage that still, you know, there's there's wrath going on now. There's a lot of people absolutely hate Israel to a point that you have to look at it and go, that's demonic. That's the only thing you can say that's just utterly demonic to have that level of hatred that people have for the nation of Israel. Are, is Israel perfect? No. The Bible tells us it's not going to be. 
until Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives. Okay? They're going to be evil, wicked, mean, and nasty. But he also says, if you bless Israel, I'll bless you. If you curse them, I'll curse you. And he never changed his mind on that. Why would he tell us Gentiles to take, take care of people that don't do things right? Do you think it's got something to do with grace? One of the most humbling things is when you have not earned any grace and you get it. They've not earned it in a lot of their history. They haven't earned it. But, gosh, when people are over there, missionaries we know and stuff like that, and you know how, they're, you know how they, they might win them to Messiah? By extending grace. That's what's, that's what's doing it. Now, the last days will be a time when the Lord will be the God of all the families of Israel. So if you want to turn with Jeremiah 30 to Jeremiah 31 with me. Jeremiah 31. Because this is the context of that verse that Matthew records is fulfilled. So you don't just go in there and pull something out of nowhere and put it in. That part is fulfilled, but there's a lot of stuff that goes around that verse that has to be fulfilled too. So there's going to be another time that there are going to be kids killed in the history of Israel. Woe to those who were with child in those days. Revelation. Okay, Jeremiah 31, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. When does that take place? Millennium, right? Now, it will remind them of the Lord's love for them. Okay, when the Lord comes back and conquers all of his enemies. Okay, verse 2, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. What's happened to Jerusalem and Israel in the tribulation? They have been wiped out. They've been laid siege to. They've been invaded by the king of the north who destroys the king of the south and then lays siege to Jerusalem. What has happened to them? Things, oh, let's see, stars falling out of heaven that compromise all of the water, uh, the sun going nova, you name it, and it's happened to them. And right at the last, just for the second advent, is an earthquake that breaks Jerusalem into three pieces. Okay, so are, do they need to be rebuilt? This is millennial. We know when those things happen. And he says, Again you shall go up and take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Gosh, they dance in the millennial kingdom. Can you believe that? I think the Baptists are going to have to figure out what to do with, with that myself. But... <laughs> Again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria 
and the planters shall plant and shall enjoy them. And there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall call out. Ephraim is one of the grandchildren of Rachel. Okay, Ephraim and Manasseh, son of Joseph. Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. So it's going to remind them of the Lord's love for them. It's a time of regathering from the remotest parts of the earth. That's the next verses. Jeremiah 31, 7 says, For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chiefs of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. What's going to be left in the tribulation of Israel? Not much. They have, they have, the, the Jews are almost exterminated again. And they're going to cry out, save the remnant again. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country. And I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child, together a great company, and they shall return here. With weeping they shall come. You know, in Matthew 25, you put these passages together, Matthew 25, his angels go out and gathers everybody. Right? And then there's the separated into the sheep and the goats. Ah, the sheep are the believers, the goats are the unbelievers, because they join the devil and his angels in the lake of fire. He says, <laughs> With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them. I'll make them walk by streams of waters. Oh, there's some stuff that's, there's so many things that go into this when you think about it because the Lord's going to actually make the Dead Sea usable. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be fresh water coming out of the throne. It's going to clean out the Dead Sea. Can you imagine that? What are they going to find? Probably more elements and minerals than they know what to ever do with over the Millennial Kingdom. On a straight path in which they shall not stumble... For I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. And declare in the coastlands afar off. And say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd. Keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He's paid the redemption price. He bought him. And redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they shall come and shout for joy in the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life shall be like a watered garden. <clears throat> Notice this next line. They shall never languish again. This millennial. Then the virgin shall rejoice in the dance. And the young men and the old together, and I will turn their mourning into joy. Can you imagine after the tribulation that Israel is the focus of all the nations? And it's warming up right now. Some of the stuff that they, that they say and do to Israel is unbelievable. It's probably the most unfair way you can treat anybody that's ever lived on the planet. 
He says, I'll turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them, and I will give them joy for their sorrow, and I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Okay? Then in verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. So we just saw in Matthew 2. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. There's going to be children lost in the tribulation. They're going to go through another period of weeping and mourning. And yet, they're going to come through it. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping. That doesn't seem right, does it? Boy, when we have something to mourn, we want to mourn it, right? They used to hire mourners. A lot of places in the world, they still hire mourners to come in. If they don't have enough mourning, then sometimes the people don't go to the next phase of their reincarnation or whatever it is. So they hire people to come in just so they can say they have mourned enough. But the Lord says, restrain your voice from mourning. Why? Because your mourning's turned into joy. And your eyes from tears, and your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they shall return from the land of the enemy. See, his angels are going to go and bring everybody back to that area. I mean, here is the Lord's hand supernaturally working to restore Israel. And when he's done, all Israel shall be saved. They're not saved because they're Jews. Okay? They're saved because they've been redeemed and they've accepted it. The work of the Lamb on the cross. Now, <clears throat> it will follow a time of intense mourning, which fits well with the siege lays on, laid on Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation. And it's a time when the city will be rebuilt. Do you know what happened here in Matthew 2 and what was going on? The city had been rebuilt already. That's what the decree was, to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And that's what they did under Ezra and Nehemiah. So the city had already been, so this is not about, all about that first advent. But what is it about? It's telling us that before the millennial kingdom comes in, there's going to be another time of intense mourning and sorrow for the Jews. So it's a time when the city is going to be rebuilt. Now, verse 19, when Aaron was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, I love whenever you see people following instructions and people keeping their word. I know this is an angel. And some will say, well, they don't have a choice anymore. But here's the angel. Because what did he say? You go stay there till I come get you. Okay? And I tell you it's okay. So what did Joseph do? He got up. <laughs> he left. And he stayed. And what did the angel do? He found him. Now, some of us would go, do I need to send you my GPS coordinates? I don't think so. The angel keeps his word. 
arise and take the child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, because those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and he took the child and his mother and he came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now this is Joseph. Joseph has done, followed everything, but you'll notice that courage overcomes fear. He, he was afraid. He was getting ready to go there. He was getting ready to do it, but there was a fear that set in to Joseph. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee. So how did Jesus end up a Galilean preacher? Right here. He was headed back to Bethlehem. And he got another visitor. He says, go on to Galilee. You know, sometimes the Lord says, okay, I know you're afraid. Go, just, I'll take care of you. Go ahead and do it. In verse 23, And they came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, Nazarene basically means a consecrated one. No prophecy really calls him a Nazarene, but many say that he is consecrated and set apart. The Hebrew Natsar is a word that basically indicates to guard, to keep, or to watch. And if you take a look at some of the major prophecies of Messiah, and the term Messiah itself, it means anointed one, and hence a, a consecrated one. Isaiah 9, 6, a child shall be born to us. The government shall rest on his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then uh, 11, a, sh a shoot shall spring forth from Jesse. Okay, guess who that shoot is? He is the anointed one. But he's called a... Nazarene, and it's not really because he took the Nazarite vow. There's nothing indicates that that he did. John the Baptist did, um, but the term Nazarene indicated his home city, okay, where he was living at, rather than the one who had taken the vow. And it's used Jesus the Nazarene multiple times. Sometimes it's used just as a simple descriptive term, okay. Jesus, the one that comes from Nazareth. And sometimes it's used as a title of derision. So sometimes people see that as Nazarene as being a, a bad thing. It's just like sometimes, you know, I know a guy that had two cities in Oklahoma claimed him, Oklahoma City and Tulsa both. And one said he was from the other one. <laughs> they both said he was from the other town. But this one is either a good title or a title of derision. Now, the missing child. In verse 41, okay, now they're back, now they're at Nazareth, now they're in the area of Galilee, and his parents, that's the word ganius in the plural, so it tells us here that, that Joseph was still alive at this point in time, used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, Jesus had godly 
parents, Joseph and Mary. And we know that Joseph was a stepdaddy, if you will. And we know that, that he had godly parents. They sought to follow the law, circumcised on the eighth day. Here it says go up to Jerusalem three times. They're living under the law and doing a pretty good job of it. And when he became 12, now this is the the common understanding, a usual time of a coming of age, which frequently denotes an age of accountability. Although it doesn't tell us exactly what it is, that's commonly done. And when this happens, even today in Jewish synagogues, they have a bar mitzvah. Bar is the Aramaic word for son. And it is a word, that, and mitzvah means judgment, son of judgment. So it basically saying is, yeah, you're accountable at this point in time for what, what you do. Uh, they also have one now frequently for, for, the, for the ladies, and it's a bat mitzvah. Some people would say bat, but I think bat is a better translation, a bat mitzvah. But uh, I actually went to one of those one time, and it was uh, quite curious and quite interesting. It says, and they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days. Now there was one day for Passover. Followed by the feast of unleavened bread that lasted seven days. And first fruits was the first day after the Passover Sabbath. So whatever day it could vary from time to time. It was a seven day feast, actually eight days, with the first day being the Passover, and then first fruits being sometime inside of that seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says, the boy Jesus stayed behind. Hupomeno. Meno means to abide, and hupo means under, to abide. He just, I'm going to stay here. Okay. In Jerusalem. And his parents were unaware of it. This is a uh, strong negative with Gnosko. They didn't know it. Okay, now how could they leave a kid behind? That's the thing that all of us, and I suspect, you know, Jesus knew who he was early on. He had other things to do. And so, anyway, he just stays, well, after all, he's 12. He's accountable for his decisions and everything else. And he says, they, they didn't know it, but they supposed him to be in the caravan. Caravan, a synodia, comes from hados, which means away and soon means with. It's the only place this word used in the New Testament. And it means in company with someone along the way. So that's how they rendered it, caravan. And went a day's journey. Okay, so they came from Nazareth. They came with other people. People were going back to Nazareth. And that's where Mary and Joseph were and, the, and the, the brothers. That's where they were. And they just figured, well, Jesus had made some friends. And he was with some neighbors. And he's fine. Okay. And I didn't think anything about it. It says they went a day's journey. Now, I, I know about you all. And I know about being a parent. And if you lose sight of them for just a few minutes, it can be very disconcerting. But here he'd been gone for a day. Then they started looking. It's kind of like losing one of them in Walmart. You know? And then you learn you can get them to announce it <laughs> on the, the loudspeaker. 
But so they start they start looking for Jesus, and and he's just not there. Among his relatives is Suganes. That's that's his um, those related to him uh, by blood, and acquaintances. Nostas comes from gnosis, just people they knew. Okay, so they're looking for Jesus in this caravan. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, always love when three days pops in to the narrative. <clears throat> they don't know if he's dead or not. Right? After three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now you might wonder, with what Mary had been given, you remember Luke chapter 2 and the Magnificat, and about your son and the prophecies from Simeon and Anna and all this, you might think, well, I know, he just stayed by at the temple. Thought maybe that's one of their first thoughts. It wasn't. Their first thought. So it's a day's journey out. It's a day's journey back. And they've spent another whole day looking for him. <clears throat> and he says, listening to them in the midst of the teachers and asking them questions. Now, <clears throat> kind of like Jonah, gone three days, picture of resurrection. For mom and dad, it was kind of a picture of resurrection, early on picture. How about Abraham taking a three-day journey to sacrifice his son Isaac? And Hebrews 11 tells us that he considered him dead when the Lord told him to do it. So in a sense, he was dead for three days till Abraham got him back. Now, <clears throat> were they distraught? His parents? Missing 12-year-old can bring a lot of stress on a parent. You know, my kids are older than that. <laughs> Significantly, if they're gone for three days, I still get, <laughs> what's happened to them? Why haven't I heard from them? Why, you know, that's just who we are. <clears throat> Verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed. I love this. This is existami. It's the word that is used here. It is an imperfect tense which means it's an ongoing a, uh, action in the past time. Aorist active indicative. It's a fact. 17 times. Histami means to stand, and X means outside of yourself. Have you ever tried to stand outside yourself? That's one way to be amazed. It basically is saying that they were, they were clueless. They couldn't figure it out. They were trying to think it through. They couldn't think it through. Where did this kid get all this wisdom that he had? This word is used 17 times. Frequently, it's what Jesus did to other people when he was around them. He caused this amazement. And they were amazed at his understanding, the synesis, used seven times. This word understanding is used by Jesus in the great commandment in Mark 12:33. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all your understanding, every part of your being. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is an interesting word. Apocresis is the word used four times. Cresis is the word that means judgment, 
one of the basic root words of judgment. And apo on the front of it means to, to make a decision outward. You've thought about it, you've come to a conclusion and applied it. And it is a considered and judged response to a question. There's a Hebraism. You find the Bible. It says, and they answered and said. And they answered and said. You find it all through the Old Testament. You find it used through the Gospels too. People are questioning Jesus. And it says, and he answered and said. Isn't that redundant? Unless you realize that answered has to do with thought before speech. Okay? So he formulated what he's going to say. He wasn't just running at the mouth. He answered and said. That means he thought it through. He'd rendered a judged response. And that's pretty well an example of what we're supposed to do, right? So he answered. He didn't avoid questions. Sometimes he didn't want to answer one. But when he answered one, he had thought it through, especially when you see that. He didn't need to. But it's setting an example for us. Now... Amazement occurs when we witness something outside of the norm. Amazement occurs when we witness something outside of the norm. That's what happens. Because here's a 12-year-old, and there's some pretty smart 12-year-olds. When you start looking at Daniel, he was pretty smart when he got into his teenage years. So there's some exceptions, but it's not the norm. And that's what happens when we get amazed at something outside of the norm. We get amazed at stuff that if we see an athletic play that is unusual, unique, not the norm, it brings amazement to us. Now, Jesus, outside the norm in every way, was able to amaze even at the age of 12. Think about that. This is a child... Fully God, fully man, but the child has got to grow. The child, the human side of Jesus, has to grow up. And he did. Where did he get all this stuff? Well, there's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to provide him what he needs. But he's also, in his human form, he's going to have to study. Okay, so he knew what was in the scripture. <laughs> the divine author, he wrote it. <laughs> but in the humanity, he's got to connect. He's got to. He's got to function as a true human being. So his ability to comprehend how things work together caused their amazement. What amazed them? His understanding. How do things work together? You know, when you start, you, you know, you take a look at a. Uh, uh, engine in an automobile. Okay, and you can look at this engine and it's got parts, all jillions of parts that go all together. And I rem- I, haven't, I don't work on these electronic things, but back when I was working on cars, they had points and plugs and all those other things, and you could you could measure them, you could take them out, you could replace them, you could do all kinds of do-it-yourself sort of stuff. You know, reset the points. You know, clean the spark plug. There's all kinds of things that you could do. But to understand how it worked and why, that's another level of mechanic. Okay? And that's what we have here. This is another level of mechanic. He understood. He knew the thoughts of every man and what was inside of him. He understood how we think. 
He understood how the scriptures fit together. He knew it well enough that he could say, well, this goes with this, goes with this, and goes with this. And you have to put these together to get the whole picture. This understanding is fascinating to think about. And that's what he was teaching the teachers in the temple. They were fascinated at his understanding. What do you think he'd have been teaching them? Let's see. How can David? Uh, how can how can uh, how can the Lord call uh, call David his son, and he be David's Lord? Huh? Understanding. He's fully God. And he's fully man. I love that question. How can he be God and man at the same time? Okay, because that's what it says. And when you take passages like Psalm 110 and you find here's David calls him Lord and he's David's son. This doesn't make any sense. And the the Jews sought the answer to that question. He's fully God and he's fully man is the only answer to that question in a literal sense. See, was Jesus a literalist? He spoke in parables, but it didn't mean he became an allegorist. Now, humanity possesses a worldly understanding of God, um, a worldly understanding that God will demonstrate doesn't fully understand reality. Humanity possesses a worldly understanding that God will teach us or demonstrate doesn't truly understand reality. This world has a worldly understanding. This passage in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Cleverness of the clever is literally our word understand. So the understanding of the understander (laughs) in human terms, I'll set aside. So there's some people that put things together like climate change. And they feel like they've understood it. And if you missed it this last week, the ocean currents, the Atlantic uh, Ocean are falling apart. That's going to lead to another catastrophe here on Earth and the raising of the waters and all this other stuff. And all that science doesn't factor God. So I submit it's not truly science if they leave the God factor out of things. So, but they think they understand it. God says, I'll show you. <laughs> Come up with these things. You're going to predict how much snowfall tomorrow? <laughs> Why are you all over the map? Because the computer models are all over the map. Anywhere from a trace to a foot is what we're expecting here in Oklahoma City. Isn't that wonderful to know? We can really plan ahead. Mature believers <clears throat> want to share their understanding. If we're one of those mature believers, we want to share what God has given to us. This is Paul in Ephesians 3.3. That by revelation that was made known to me, the mystery is I wrote before in brief. Paul in Ephesians 3 is unveiling the theology of the church age as the mystery. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand, here's our word, my insight into the mystery of Christ. God told me what it was about. There's going to be a dispensation. 
that is in the middle of the it, it, near the end of the age of Israel. Okay, we're mystery. wasn't revealed in the Old Testament because the Jews had to be given a legitimate offer of their Messiah, and they rejected him. And God said, okay, I'm going to put a parenthesis here in between the finishing up of the age of Israel. So it stopped there on the day of Pentecost, and on the rapture it starts again, seven years. The last seven years, Daniel's 70th week of the age of Israel. He says, that he says um, so you might understand my insight in the mystery of Christ that in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now mature believers pray that others will understand how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I hope we pray we understand how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But once we somewhat figure it out, we need to pray for others to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1, 9 to 12. Um, I love all these little epistles Paul wrote. I'm going to personally thank him one of these days because they are so full of, of good stuff. For this reason... Since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The church at Colossae, he's he's writing them and he says, I want you to know it all. I want you to be filled. Some people see it concerned when other people, they think other people are catching up to them on their knowledge. And so they want to shut it off, not teach, not tell them anything else. And so what's Paul saying? I'm going to give you everything I got, and I hope you get more. This is what it means to, to love one another. And he says, I want you to have this spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Here it is. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He says, I want you to have all this, but the purpose is, you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How's that? Humility. You know, what's this attitude Christ had? Humility. Uh, Sacrifice. That's who he was. Don't we want that attitude? Not a false humility. I used to get after some of my friends. And we, we, we taught so many doctrines. I said we were proud of our doctrine of humility. And you think about that. Golly. Anyway, and we were. That's the bad part. <laughs> Divine understanding brings a full awareness, assurance of relationship with the Lord himself. In Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Divine understanding. When we get this wisdom that comes down from above, and we clean out this wisdom that comes from the world below, we get a full assurance of the relationship we have with him. If you have a question about your relationship with the Lord, 
I submit 1 John 5.13. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. You can't... People... Many theologies keep adding works to it. And if you have anything based on works, then you're always going to wonder when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Will I or not? I'll fly away. If you don't know, is an arrogant statement. If you don't know, you're going. If you know you're going, it's a great song to sing. Can you know? There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Very clear. You're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest any should boast. Isn't that an amazing verse? But see, the works come in after we get saved as a thank you to the one who saved us. And what do we have to do? Just accept it. Accept it. The gospel is so easy. People say, well, it's way too easy. Not in this world. Anything but easy. Because we're going to figure out a way to save ourselves come hell or high water. And I tell you what, it just don't work. We are condemned and we need a Savior. And there's only one who walked away from a tomb. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your mercy, your grace, your love, for all that you poured out upon us, not because of who we are, but because of of just your love for us. And Father, I pray we will take these messages, the passages today, and they'll become a part of us, and that we will be able to walk in a manner worthy of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.